You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm just seeing the same type of beers over and over again. I'm drowning in 4% pale ales. And I can understand why, why that's the market, because they're runner beers and people like hops. But for me personally, that's sort of, that's sort of the last thing I want to do. And if I'm able with Sunken Nave to, to create my own beers, I don't want to compromise on that, even if it means I only produce about three or four beers a year to begin with. Hello and welcome to We Are Beer People, a podcast all about the many different people who help us enjoy beer. I'm your host, Rob Cadwell, and I reckon if you're listening to this, then there's a good chance that you are one of the beer people too. You might be involved in the world of beer, you may want to find out more about the industry, or perhaps you simply enjoy drinking the stuff. So join me now as I have a chat with one of the beer people. As a nation of drinkers, we're a bit like a seagull eyeing up a bag of chips as we're tempted again and again by the plethora of pale ales, IPAs and lagers. And you only need to look at the range of beers on the shelf or the lineup at a bar to see the popularity of these. But there's something to be said for a more understated, quietly confident beer. Beer that draws upon a long thread of local and British brewing history. And today's guest is a big proponent of well-brewed beers rooted in history. I travelled to Worthing a town on the south coast of England, on a rainy winter's day to have a conversation with Henry Kirk. Henry is a much-celebrated brewer that's been at Joseph Holt's, Harvey's, Lane, Fuller's and Hambrew Co., as well as being the head brewer at Darkstar. And we'll hear all about how he's setting up his own brewery project, Sunken Nave. We had a great chat, we talked for hours and could have talked for hours more. So join us as we discuss Henry's journey into beer, the importance of time, drinking in dressing gowns, how he secured Gail's prize old ale, and his future plans with Sunken Nave. Please note, this episode includes some atmospheric creaky chairs, and we started by asking Henry, why beer, and what brought him here? I think like a lot of people, I got into sort of like real ale and things like that very sort of later in life. You know, I think in my sort of clubbing days, it was a lot of Smirnoff Ice. It was a lot of red stripe. Uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, drinking just to get drunk. I'm, I'm ashamed to say now. But as I grew older, I sort of developed, um, you know, I'm talking in my uh, uh, early, early 20s. A big moment for me was I was living in Brighton, around the corner from the, from the train station, and you've got, the, um, you've got the Prince Albert pub there, which is an amazing uh, pub under the, um, on Trafalgar Street, and it had dark star beers in it. And so the home of Dark Star is the Evening Star, of course, which is about a five-minute walk up the road. Um, but at that time, they didn't really want 21, 22-year-old idiots like myself in there. It was a little bit frosty, shall we say. You weren't their client market. Exactly, whereas the Prince Albert is this big old pub. It's really huge for its music. Um, and it was basically like my living room. And that was the point at which I discovered hops and, you know, all that sort of funky stuff and the beautiful sort of dark star, you know, it's sort of London underground label. Um, and that sort of started me down, down that road. And then fast forward a few years and I'm managing a shop in Chelsea 
and I'm at a um, a, a uh, house party of a colleague in Putney, of all places. And anyway, he, her um, her flatmate was from Melbourne, and he was telling me how um, he was. So this is all 2006, 2007. So only at the sort of very earliest murmurings of the craft beer revolution in the UK. And anyway, he's saying how in in, in Melbourne. There were all these incredible uh, brew pubs everywhere, and they all had really strange names and strange beers, and they sounded like a real mix of like a speakeasy. One of them was accessed down this little alleyway, and you knocked on the door, and then this fire escape opened, and you went in. And I was like, oh, my God, London needs this. In the sort of idiotic, um, like, ambitious, like, foolhardy way that you can only decide when you're 25 and you have no idea of the difficulty that is involved in brewing beer and stuff like that. So off the back of that, I decided to go to Heriot Watt University. So I studied brewing and distilling. Had a wonderful time at Heriot Watt. Um, in the summers there, I, uh, I, went, I worked at Harvey's Brewery, which is near us here in, in Sussex. Lewis, and then also Joseph Holt's Brewery and got a real feel for the ales and the family brewers and things like that. Um, yeah, so it was all down to that meeting of that one, one guy, that one flatmate. I can't even remember his name, but thank God for him because that sent me down the, the, the road and, you know, here we are uh, 16 years later. It's amazing, isn't it, those mm. sorts of moments where you can uh, dictate a lot after that. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, it's sort of astonishing now, looking back on it. But I, yeah, somehow I, I went for it. Um, and thank God I did, really, because I think joining Harriet Watt is a bit like joining the Mafia. You know, there's a lot of people in the industry who went there. So even if you're not particularly good or you didn't get a particularly great degree, um, you know, the, the, doors, the doors will open. You know, it's like a lot of, a lot of courses. There's, there's big networks, you know, whatever you, whatever you do. Yeah, I mean, I guess with a lot of these things, it's knowing people and, you know, being able to, I don't know, knock on someone's door and say, can I help out or do you need a, a role or something like that? Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, um, after, I, after I finished at Harriet Watts, this is 2012, 13 or something, I came back to London. And by this point, the craft beer movement was in full swing. And I moved in with my girlfriend, now wife, Rosie and uh, she she lived in Hackney Wick in the peanut factory, and down literally down the road, straight down the road, you had the Beavertown Brewery. So I walked in there and I was like, "Give me a job," uh, you know what's his name, um, Logan, and uh, he didn't sadly. Um, but you know, so suddenly I had to. Um, so then I got a job at Lane's Brew Co. Yeah. and they had these brew pubs, and so I was there for a year, and then through LinkedIn, Fuller's found me. And so when I went for an interview there, three of the four people that interviewed me had been at Harriet Watt. So, you know, that, that, was, that was a big help. And so then I started, started there. Did you learn different things then at those different breweries where you started out? And... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was in Scotland, I uh, ran a bottling line for a brewery called Stewart's for a year and a bit. And so I got to see how the small breweries work and most craft breweries are in these sort of little industrial units and the first thing you have to do when you arrive is take everything out so you've got to take about 18 pallets worth of stuff out um you know and then we had to assemble the packaging line and also because i wasn't there on the friday we were relying on the fact that the brewers had carbonated the beer properly that the beer was at the right temperature and all this sort of stuff 
if they hadn't have done that, we were in for a dreadful time. So we learned, you know, I learned a lot from from that, from that side of things, also from, you know, Harvey's and and Holtz, you know, just a lot of a lot of old classic equipment. You know, Harvey's is fascinating because they've got all sorts of things. See, they've got the two mash tons, two coppers, but rather than having an underback, they have this thing called a, they've called Valentines. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're like, I mean, this, you know, this is incredible. So basically it's a tube within a tube. So you've got an inner tube where basically once you start, you've got this, you know, beautiful big brass key that you've got to open up the, 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 the inlet, the outlet from the mash tun into this Valentine. And basically what happens is that the big, um, the wort goes up and out so it's clear plastic around it. So it looks like some sort of, um, uh, what's the word, like some sort of lighthouse. Um, and basically the ingenious thing about it is so, so it goes up and out and then into some what's called work receivers, which are basically like these open um, stainless steel baths, which yeah. kind of separate, which kind of you know, receive and hold the, the work while it's waiting to go into the, into the boiler. Into the kettle, I should say. Oh, no, not even kettle. It's copper. It's really made out of copper there. Incredible. Um, and so, and then the fun thing about these Valentines is that in a tube, you can lower it. So basically, as the work sort of starts draining out or whatever, or starts getting slower, you can just, just wheel it down and, and lower it. And so you can control the flow into the work receiver that way. So, you know, you've got all that. And then, of course, at Harvey's, they've got open fermentation. So they've got the open squares, which is very, very exciting. And it was the same at, same at, um, at Joseph Holt. So, yeah, you've got that side of things. And then, then at Lane's, I was basically running two little brew pubs, one at the People's Park Tavern it was on uh, Victoria Park, and then another one in, in Acton, mm. which burned down, nothing to do with me. Um, I think they, they rebuilt it, but without the, without the brew kit in it. So... So I was doing little five-barrel kits where I was completely on my own, just brewing it, racking it. You know, I'd come back on a Monday and hope some of it had sold. Um, you know, I got to do some weird stuff towards the end there. I did, I did my first ever um, sour beer. Oh, wow. Where I, went to, um, where I went to Marks and Spencer's in Stratford and bought myself some lovely tights. And uh, This know, is the usual recommended way to do it, isn't well, it? Well, it was back then. Yeah. Because it's amazing how quickly all this stuff has changed. Yeah, so this is so this way of doing it is called the Ryan Merrihue method. He was the first head brewer at Siren, um, American guy. Yeah, yeah. So basically, what you do is you get you, you get you get your tights. Don't wear them first. You know you're going to have them fresh, and then you unless you really want it, and then you put the put uh, crushed malted barley in in it, tie tie it up, and then just simply put it into your sterilized wort that you boiled for 15 minutes and then cooled down through your heat exchanger back to about 40 degrees and then leave it over the weekend. So when, you, so when I came back in on the Monday or whenever it was and you pull this thing out, oh, my God. The pH has, has dipped, but there's so much lactic acid bacteria and stuff on the, on the huskers of the barley yeah. that when I pulled it out, it was like some sort of sea creature. There was just this white gelatinous mass all over this all over this like Guy Fawkes type thing. Um, and it, it did, it did work. It was, it was pretty crazy, but you sort of think, and then you, and then you boil the work again and to yeah. sterilize it again. And yeah. So yeah, I mean, I got, to, I got to do some, I got to do some silly stuff there. Uh, my first commercial black IPA. 
Um, what year was that? So this was 2012, 2013. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so I got to do stuff like that. And then... Um, yeah, and then I was at then I was at Fuller, so I went from working for myself to uh, being in charge of a team of uh, five or six people, brewers, operators, mm. um, you know, ordering 120 tons of malt a week. Uh, you know, doing the brewing book. You know, we we, we were doing 32 brews a week there, or 32 guiles. Um, yeah, crazy. Crazy, I felt like the biggest imposter who had ever lived. You obviously went from, I guess, smaller brewers like that. You'd been at a family brewer um, at Harvey's. Mm. What was it like then going to a brewer like Fuller's? um, And what did that sort of bring in for your brewing journey? Um, I think what's interesting about all this stuff is that when when you're starting out, especially as I did in brewing later in life, so when I was at Harriet Watt, I was pretty much eight, nine, even ten years older than a lot of my fellow students. Um, you sort of feel like you need to catch up pretty quick. Um, so, so then when I got the job offer from Fuller's, I was absolutely astonished. It's a bit like the game of life. You know, you feel like you've done the lucky roll of the dice or the spin, and you've gone from, you know, literally brewing five barrels in the middle of nowhere to going into Fuller's. So, you know, that, that was a huge thrill. Um, obviously, the reality was very different uh, from that. Um, you know, it was, it was pretty intimidating. It's pretty, uh, you're also, I think the interesting thing about family brewers is that they're very, very hier- hierarchical um, in a way that other, other breweries just are, especially cast, uh, craft breweries just aren't. Um, so there was, quite, there was quite a big class divide should we say, um, I very quickly realized that you had to, you had to make friends and keep on side with, with the guys who had come up from the operator level and made their way up, um, you know, fr- from there. What I used to call the, you know, the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers, because they were the ones who really knew how everything worked. And they were, really, and they were usually pretty grumpy um, and felt pretty unloved. But they were the ones, and still are actually, the ones that keep the whole place running. Um, but yes, as you can imagine, in a place where there's a family, um, it's, it's a bit strange. It's a bit strange. There was definitely, um, yes, it was odd. I think if you didn't talk proper, you weren't going to get anywhere higher than, than where you were. And, you know, that's, that's obviously, that's, that's a real shame, but that's kind of how how it was. I mean, these, these breweries aren't quite as bad um, as they used to be. You know, you used to, I remember I worked, um, my first ever bit of work experience was at Hall and Woodhouse. And, um, you know, they used to call, um, you know, you'd call the family members, you know, Mr. Edward or Mr. Robert or Mr. Henry, um, you know, kind of weird sort of deferential thing. Mm. Um, so that, yeah. That that side of it wasn't wasn't fun, but it was still it was still an amazing time. We still had a great time with on the whole. There were some, there were some there were some <laughs> there were some grim moments. I mean, I did make some hilarious um, mistakes. Well, they weren't very hilarious at the time, but um, you know, it's a big it's a big old kit. You know, you're going from brewing five barrels, so that's eight that eight hex eight hundred liters yeah. to like a thousand hectoliters. Um, 
but yeah, so it was. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. That's it. Yeah, but they always say they're the learning experiences. I guess when you do those, and you probably don't forget them. And no, time, I mean my, my my colleagues then would probably say that I kept making those mistakes. But I, you know, at least I tried. Um, yeah, I mean, I used to. I still lived at Hackney in Hackney for a while before I moved to Worthing, and um, yeah, I mean. When I was I was doing early shifts for a year, early and late shifts. So that's starting at five o'clock in the morning till one, and then twelve till eight is the late shift. Mm. And uh, to begin with, the first couple of months, I was cycling in. So I was cycling from Hackney to um, to Chiswick, and it was the most incredible cycle. I was just cycling all the way along through East London, you know, past St Paul's, put down Fleet Street, past Buckingham Palace. You know, it was it was kind of incredible. But it took me an hour and a half. Two hours, depending on how hungover I was, yeah. and um, I really hit the wall, you know, on Pall Mall. Yeah. That was just that long straight road that's going nowhere. But then, fortunately for me, Uber launched in 2014. So uh, you know, once it was fun doing it, I sort of did it in the summer. So I started in the 19th of May 2014. Um, I started, uh, I did it over the summer. But then, yeah, as soon as it started raining and stuff, I was just like, now I'm going to let, I'm going to let Uber. Take, take the strength. Yeah, cycling's less fun at that point, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Especially as my old boss, Georgina Young, who I owe, owe so much to, she was like, oh, it takes you an hour and a half. That's not very fast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so thanks, Joe. Uh, George. I'm doing my best. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's great. And so what were you brewing at Fuller's when you started? The first, well, this is, this is it. The first ever solo brew I did on my own was a strong mild, a strong X mild from uh, 2000, uh, 2000, from 1914. Wow. So that was done in August uh, 2014. So that was that was released to commemorate the start of the First World War. That feels like a very true to character, uh, Henry Bree. Yeah, well, it's just what luck. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, what luck. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's huge, huge good fortune, really. Tremendous. Um, and, yeah, so that was a... Um, Oh my god! I can't even remember what the ABV was now. Um, it's been a long time since I've tried some, but yeah, I think it was about seven and a half percent, sort of strong pale mild. So it was, it was pale ale malt, um, a lot of invert sugar, you know, whole IBCs, thousand liters worth pumped in, um, loads of loads of goldings. Um, yeah, and it was just a, a tr- bottle condition, so it was a tremendous. Um, tremendous beer, really, and that was part of the um, the Brewers Reserve uh, sort of series that Fuller's were doing at the time. Another real slice of luck that John Keeling, the head brewer at that time, was a real um, you know he was a real advocate for bringing back um, beers from the Fuller's archives. Mm-hmm. So they employed Ron Patterson, uh, who's this famous beer beer blogger. And a, and a hero of mine, um, to develop, uh, to, to decipher the old brewing books. So you can imagine, they, in, they keep at Fuller's back then, underneath what I used to call the Queen Mother's um, living room, which was, you know, this huge long room where the family used to entertain people. Mm. Underneath there, you had the cellars. So in amongst all these Jeroboams of champagne and all this sort of stuff, um, there would be all these brewing books. So you dig them out. Usually they'd be covered in brick dust or whatever. And you'd open them up. And, and you know, as you can imagine, the further back you go in time, the more indecipherable the recipes come in. 
and Ron would go in and go, especially with hops and things, there would be some, because, um, you know, back in the sort of Victorian times, they didn't have, everyone will be shocked to hear, they didn't have these surprise, all these huge uh, variety of different hops. Mm. They did have hops from America. They did use hops from Europe. They, you know, they did use hops in, in from the UK, obviously. But, you know, they, so they've always been, in the Victorian times, they had this huge market. You know, uh, New York hops were very popular in, in, in the UK. But, you know, it wasn't Citra. It wasn't Mosaic. It was like Cluster or something like that. And they were probably using them in the same way that we need to use English hops now. So bittering to balance and maybe a little bit of aroma. But well, No, you're exactly right. It would ass- The vast majority of it would be at the start of boil. Um, you know, and they would dry hop in the cask, in the actual, in the hogsheads. But someone like Ron Patterson would sit down and he would look, because for us, there would be the farmers. They'd write down the names of not the hops themselves. It would be the farmers. And he would go, okay, yes, so there's that guy, that guy's name. Oh, and look, there's M.K. there. Yes, that means mid-Kent. So if it was mid-Kent, that means it, it would have been a Fuggles rather than a Golding, say. Apologies to Ron if I'm getting this wrong. But it was that sort of thing. So this is electrifying stuff, seeing him do all this, working out all this stuff. So it's, uh, you know, so to be around that and, and be involved, I mean, they did a double stout that was really great, which was really popular. Actually, they, they brewed it again. Um, you know, they all burnt an extra, which was an incredible beer. Um, I mean, I personally did a 1909 pale ale, um, which was... Nine percent and yeah, loads of loads of invert sugar, just pale malt, golding stuff like that. So we yeah, so it was it was the brewers reserves and past masters is so the past masters was the main um, was was the main sort of uh, bringing back uh, resurrecting of old old recipes from the Fuller's archive. The past masters was more the barrel age kind of thing where they would get John Keeling as you can imagine has all these connections with all these various people. So we had all these um, various whiskies and things, whiskey barrels that would come down and we'd age beer in it. Usually the sort of Golden Pride worked eight and a half percent for like a year or two or, you know, so the barrels would be all over the brewery. You know, they'd be like stretching out and about in the packaging areas and stuff like that. And we'd think, oh, do we bother it now? And we'd be like, oh, can we be bothered? <laughs> oh, maybe we'll do it in a month or next year or something. Uh, yeah. And uh so yeah, that was that was that was a lot of fun. All that stuff. That was, that was my first brew, the nineteen fourteen X. And was that when you like first got into older, more traditional styles of British beers, or had you had a view into that before? Um, that's a good question. I don't think I was in it. I was into it uh, quite as much as I began to be into it. I mean, I think. Um, I think at Harvey's they had their barley wine, which is their Elizabethan ale. Yeah. So I think that was that. Then that's a wonderful, wonderful beer. I'm not sure if they do it anymore. Um, that was a sort of eight percent barley wine kind of thing. Really, really uh, wonderful beer. So I think that was the first stirrings. But you know, I was mainly just sort of drinking ESB and you know London Pride and sort of bitters rather than older stuff before. Yeah. And you mentioned them, um, like Georgina and John. Were they people that were really key to you kind of growing and developing as a, a brewer? Oh, 100%. I mean, God, I used to have terrible rows with George. We used to argue about all sorts of things. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure she was justified in every, 
and everything she said to me. But um, yeah, I think, um, again, I was very, very fortunate that she, she hired me really. And I think she really pushed for me to be hired. So, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very grateful for that to her for that. And I'm also grateful to her for that because I think she, she realized that I was, I had a passion for brewing history and recipe development and stuff. And she really allowed me to allow me to do that. Um, compared to other stuff that I should have been good at that I wasn't. You know, like, uh, you know, uh, plant maintenance or understanding exactly everything that was going on in the brew house, you know, because it was, I think because I went in as a management level, that was my job as a team leader. I didn't have, and the guy I was replacing, Brendan Bray, the, the incredible Brendan Bray, who'd been there for 48 years. He joined when he was 14 and retired in 1966 and retired in 2014 when he was 62. Every time I see him, he just looks younger. Um, you know, replacing that guy. Yeah. You cannot, you, and, but you cannot replace that guy. He was there when everything was installed. I mean, he was there. I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling. That, the bloke just knew everything. You, I remember I only had three months with him before he left. And, you know, we'd be talking about something. He's like, oh, yeah, I told them in 1978 that that wasn't going to be a good idea to be there. And, I'm, and I was right. Um, you know, and I think, so I didn't, I didn't have a lot of time to really learn um, all the various processes that all the operators were doing. Yeah. And, you know, it, so I really leaned upon um, a lot of the guys there to do to do all the hard work. So I was, you know, and, and, and George, rather than just getting rid of me, um, allowed me to sort of expand into uh, coming up with new beers and, and, and that, and what I was really passionate about. And, you know, in hindsight, that's, that's, I'm, I'm very, very uh, grateful and fortunate to her that she, she, she saw that in me, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And were you involved in like the prize old ale? At Fuller's at the time, the sort of first time that so came we, round. So we had, uh, so no is the answer. Um, they had, so I joined in May 2014. Um, uh, so by then, I think they'd, they'd done their last bottle release, I think in 2011. Mm-hmm. So by the time I rolled around, these 40 hectolitres in the, in, 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 the, in the tank, in the, in the tank room, in the maturation area that I've spoken about at length, um, had been undisturbed pretty much for like three years. So that was my, but as part of all this past masters and all this, um, all this stuff, I was like, well, look at this, look at what we got down here. Why don't we do that? Um, But for whatever reason, poor sales and the fact it was a Gales beer. And, you know, at that time, 2014, sour beers are not the exciting, you know, they're a scary, weird thing. Hazy IPAs in 2014 was not a thing in the UK. Yeah. It's amazing how much things have changed. You know, even just, you know, in the past, looking back five, six, seven years. So there was a lot of nervousness within, within Fuller. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it, was a hard, it was a hard road to get it, to get it back and out there. Absolutely. And how did the opportunity come around to go back to Darkstar, back to the brewery that maybe started it all for you? So um, I, I went to, again, Harriet Watt Connection. I went to Harriet Watt with Andy Patterson, who's now at Lanamond and is now known as Lalamandy. That's his, that's his name now. Um, like Madonna or something. He just goes by the one name. Um, and, he, and he had been at Dark Star, head brewer Dark Star. And so this is towards the end of 2017. And uh, he just sort of rings me up or messages me and saying, look, I'm, I'm leaving Dark Star. 
are you interested? And by this point, I'd been living in Worthing, commuting up um, to London every day, which uh, was a bit of a mission. Um, and, I'd, and I'd loved Darkstar for a long, long, long time by then. So I still got in touch with Darkstar. And, um, you know, by this point, my, my wife was pregnant and with our second child. And I was sort of thinking I kind of need to be, as much as I love it at Fuller's and I love everybody there, um, you know, I, I, I kind of need to be less than two hours away if something happened. Um, so I applied and I went to see them. And um, I got the feeling that things were in a bit of disarray. It was the brewery at that time, end of 2017, it was packed with stuff. It was just like, um, I don't know, it was just, yeah, I just got this, maybe this is hindsight, but it, 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 seemed, it seemed like something was up. Anyway, I didn't hear anything back from the guys at Darkstar, so I thought, oh, well, they must have just hated me. That's fine. Um, but then a few months later on, I'm brought in. George wants to, Georgina wants to see me. And uh, she comes into, I uh, go into her office and she says, oh, um, well, Fuller's are going to buy someone near you. And I was like, oh, who is it? It's got to be Darkstar, right? And she was like, yes, yes, it is. And we want you to go, because they don't have a head brewer there, so we want you to go down there three days a week and help them out while the, while the sale goes through. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, well, George, I just have to tell you that I had applied for the head brewer job there. And she was like, oh, so that's why they all know who you are. And I was like, yes, okay. And then, but then before I went there, I had to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. So when I got there, I couldn't tell anyone why I was there. So I was there, and they were like, oh, are you the new head brewer there then? And I was like, no. It's like, what are you doing here? I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, it was just like, so I was there. I did that for about four or five months, I think. Um, possibly, yeah, three or four months. Yeah, because the... Um, the sale was announced. I think they announced the sale in April 2018, I think. Yeah, so I was there just basically brewing while the other two guys, the wonderful Alex Coulthard and Daryl Mills, just did everything else. So I got to brew at Darkstar. I got to make all this hop head, and they got to teach me, and again, learning a different kit, you know, but all the wonderful brewers who've operated on that kit, you know, you've got Mark Tranta, um, you know, Andy, Andy, Par Andy Parker did his first, when he won in the homebrew competition, yeah. you know, he, he brewed on it, his red ale there. Andy Patterson, of course. Jen Merrick, wonderful Jen Merrick, of, who's now at Big, Big Smoke. Um, so that was a real thrill, but it was a bit like, okay, no one knows about the sale apart from the senior Darkstar team and me. And I can't say anything. And obviously everyone knows something's up. Um, and unfortunately, I was, I was there when this, when... They told everybody, and uh, you know, I was told just stay up on the platform because at Darkstar you had this big staircase that led up to the brew, the brew, the brew kit. They're like, just stay up here, and sort of fifteen people got made made redundant. I mean, they got they all got looked looked after, but it was still a very um, very sad time as these you know as these things always are. But I suppose my my feeling was you know with the with the senior management there they were just exhausted. You know, Mark Tranter had left, uh, you know, five years previously. Um, Rob Jones, who was one of the original guys, he'd left at the similar time. He's got his pub, uh, the amazing Duke of Wellington in Shoreham. You know, and they were just, they were just knackered and they just needed to sell. And it's a very, very difficult market. And that's the thing with a lot of, a lot of brewery purchases. It's very rare, except at the top level, that these things are a hostile takeover. Very, very much it's people 
need to sell. They've come to the end of the road. And it was very sad for me personally because I was so excited about the idea of joining as a head brewer of an independent dark star and carrying on that legacy. Um, but then, yeah, but then I went, I went back to Fuller's. And then, of course, Asahi bought Fuller's. In, you know, that, that was announced in the January 2019. Um, and we all thought that Dark Star would be, would be shut by Asahi. Um, but they didn't. And Asahi wanted me to go there. In, invested in Dark Star. So they put in a new um, external work boiler. Um, you know, they, they installed a SIP set, you know, stuff like that. And I was like, wow, okay, this is, this is you know, they're, they're investing. This is wonderful uh, news. So I took them off, up on their offer um, and I became head brewer of Darkstar, albeit in very, very strange, um, excuse me, circumstances. And uh, yeah, so there, yeah, and I was, I was there for three and a half years. When you were there as head brewer, were there any kind of things that you had to bring in to, you talked about it maybe being quite busy and in disarray. What did you have to do to do that? Or had that yeah, work we had already to, been done? No, no, we had to... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty much ground zero. So um, there, there was a gentleman there called called Duncan who's still with Asahi. You know, he he was basically like the last man standing. He'd had a battlefield, several battlefield promotions. You know, he'd gone from sort of sales administrator to basically taking care of all of like the Asahi administration, all that frightening stuff, you know, that SAP and all those sort of systems, you know, he was incredible at that. Um, and yeah, we, we, I mean, I, I was again, incredibly lucky in that our operations manager was a gentleman called John Marston, who joined a couple of, a few months after me. Uh, he's, he's ex-Carlsberg. So he, again, he's one of these guys, he's non-commissioned officers. He'd started at Carlsberg when he was 18 and worked his way up, so he was running, you know, the canning lines. Really, really sharp guy, really lovely guy. You know, they were doing a million cans in 48 hours. So he saw, oh, the dog star canning line, and was, you know, this was like going from a Formula One garage to, like, Fisher-Price, you know. I mean, this is, like, crazy. Um, but uh, we, yeah, so, and he, so, of course, coming from Carlsberg, he's big in the 5S, big into all those Six Sigma, all that stuff, really ingrained into it. So, yeah, together and with, with the sort of new team that we had to assemble, um, we, yeah, we, we, we tidied up, basically. That's what we did. Yeah. Um, also, because the kit had been really, so they, they, they were there in Partridge Green 2009, they really, what we call in the industry, sweated that kit. So we spent a lot of time fixing stuff. So trying to sort out the louter ton, which eventually we, we could never get it sorted, Sorting out the mash mixer, it needed a new motor, replacing the heat exchanger, sorting out the canning line. There was lots of stuff that we had to do to just try and try and try and fix it. And then also really we had to try and rebuild Darkstar as a brand. Um, you know, because I think the two sales had what first to Fuller's and then to Asahi had sort of affected how people view it. Because you know, brewing is very emotional or, or beers are very, very emotional. You can't have people's loyalty and then expect them just to be fine when things change. So, you know, there was an enormous amount of backlash uh, against the sale to Fuller's and then further when, when Asahi uh, took over. So that was, you know, that was, that was difficult to, 
navigate. And it's and I, and I can understand it because that's how I felt about Dark Star. The bit I think I remember ten years ago, someone saying to me, "Craft beer is like indie music." And I think it's very interesting to me that a lot of craft breweries, if they're successful, have a similar lifespan to Dark Star in that sort of twenty-five year lifespan because. You get your fans, as you can imagine, in 1994 in Dark Star when they started pumping out Hophead and, you know, in a land of bitters, I'd have loved it back then, but in a land of bitters, you know, they were doing this really uncompromisingly bitter, hoppy, pale ale, you know, with this amazing American cascade hops coming through. Um, you know, and that, that would have electrified the scene, right? And so you'd have all those fans and they'd come with you. But then, you know, like the fans of One Direction or Girls Aloud or whatever, they sort of grow up. But I suppose at least with beer, people sort of stay with you a bit longer, but they are, but they are older. And you're going to get the new guys coming through and, you know, it's... it's but people are going to have that emotional attachment because so much of it, as I just said at the start of this, you know, the Prince Albert... You know, that's my memories of Dark Star, of me being a young, caref carefree moron, you know, turning up there. I mean, I remember they had an Australia Day thing where you could eat, like, crocodile and ostriches and, like, they were selling Foster's Rattlers for a quid and I turned up in my dressing gown, you know, and it's just... <laughs> but then after I'd had too many of the Foster's Rattlers, I was like, I need a proper drink. So I started drinking hot... You know, you have, you have all these memories. Um, so it's, it's not it's not a surprise, but um, it's good. Does the dressing gown come out much these days? Unfortunately, it's no longer. It's too threadbare. Um, but uh, I think that's an amazing analogy, though, about craft beer. And it is, you know, it's it has its moment, doesn't it, with its fans at the time. But the craft beer scene moves so quickly. Mm. But maybe there's hope then that in uh, 20, 30 years time, we have the comeback tour. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. Um, I think you're starting to see this actually. A lot of the older guys, I mean, I'm 40, a lot of these old, older guys, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm very involved in our local camera, camera branch here. A lot of the older guys there, they're big into their hoppy, hazy, pale ales. And it's people my age and actually a lot younger who are really reevaluating and interested in the older stuff, much to the amazement and astonishment of the older generation, a lot of whom, I mean, I've heard a lot of people say, Look, if keg beer was as good uh, in the 70s as it is now, there may not have been a campaign for real ale. Yeah. You know, so it's 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 a funny one. You always you always rebel against um what you what you what you the previous generation did. You always want to forge your own part. Well, you should do, I suppose. Yeah. Um but yeah, you do. I think you do just have a yeah, have a have a have a lifespan, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. Everything's a cycle, you know, from spring to winter. You know, it's the circle of life. That's, that's Inescapable. <laughs> that's why we're back with flares and things at the moment. Oh, thank God. Which, for the <laughs> listeners at home, that's what we're both wearing right now. <laughs> and platform shoes. What would you say is your brewing philosophy and approach? Uh, my brewing philosophy is that basically time is the most precious and indispensable ingredient of all. I'm sorry, everyone, if that sounds really pretentious. But um, I think that's what I've really learned with the prize old ale thing is that, um, you know, letting, letting beers mature and uh, you, can, you, can get, you can get depths of flavour um, 
that I think are really interesting and uh, powerful. I think I think we just and my reason for thinking that is I've been lucky enough to go to Rodenbach, which is one of my favourite breweries, and it really is an extraordinary place. I mean, I don't know how much you know about it. Well, it was set set up by Alexander Rodenbach. He was a doctor, so it was it was set up in the eighteen twenties or something to make alcohol for medical purposes. So it wasn't even set up, um, you know, to be to be a brewery. But you had to brew to create the stuff. And it's, you know, so at Green King, they talk about their strong Suffolk beer, you know, this sort of aged beer like Prizeldale, you know, but they, 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 you know, that's a hostage situation as far as I'm concerned because they've got this incredible beer, but they don't really do anything with it. Imagine having wooden vats almost as far as the eye could see. You know, the Rodenbach recipe, beer recipe, is actually pretty boring. From what I understand, it's like Pilsner malt and a bit of maize and, you know, some like, German hops. There's nothing exciting about it. And the head brewer even says that to you when you do the tour. But there's 30, I think, 30 cellars full of all these wooden vats where the beer is maturing. I mean, whoa. And then the Rodenbach Grand Cru is a blend of 18-month-old stuff with fresh stuff and all this sort of... I mean, that, that kind of thing is thrilling. And what makes it really amazing is that in which, in each cellar, there's a different smell. You're getting different esters. You're getting different, like sometimes it'll smell like apples. Sometimes it'll smell like paint emulsion. Sometimes it'll smell a bit sort of almost deacetyl almost sweet. And you're just like, wow, this is, this is a real level of flavor that, you know, of course, commercially, you can't do this. You know, you can't, you know, Asahi can't suddenly be like, we're only exclusively releasing these kind of beers. It's just, it's not going to work in a beer beer format because it's not the sales for it. But, you know, we live in puritanical times in that everyone is very against alcohol for whatever reason, you know, I'm sure it's all justified. But, you know, everything is, I remember when we launched Prize Old Ale at the Harp, a lot of the Asahi guys were there and all they could talk about was the fact that Asahi Zero was about to be launched. And I was just like... Really? Really? Because it's, you know, and, and, and I'm not against non-alcoholic drinks. I think, you know, if, if it gets people drinking in pubs, I don't care what people drink in pubs. It doesn't matter to me. I don't want everyone to be drinking solely 9% ale. I just think that it's important that we recognise that not only does alcohol act as a social lubricant, it's also that sort of really vital midsection in, in flavour that really just lifts all the various elements within a beer and can really take it to new new heights if done well, if fermented properly. We don't want any of that heat. We don't want any of those suffusal alcohols. But you know, when you have um, you know, when you have a when you have a beer, a strong beer that's been matured for a long time correctly, it's it's a really beautiful thing. And that's that for me ultimately is the mystery of it all, is where that flavor is gonna how how it's gonna turn out. And in some ways, we're not in charge of that. Like, we, we can uh, have some ideas about where we want to go or what we did last mm. time, mm. but the beer's going to go where the beer wants to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 100%. Um, I think it's interesting as well, that dual trend about, on one hand, 0% is hugely popular and people wanting to have that moderate. Mm. But I do also think there's people who are, do want the good stuff or and well that's that, what I'm hoping from my business yeah. Plan, yeah. <laughs> Henry's crossing his fingers there <laughs> um, 
and, and we, praying. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and that thing around time is mm. is really important as well, isn't it? Because um, you, because you can make a beer quickly, it doesn't necessarily mean you should. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think um, I think uh, with cast beer, because there's such a low entry to it, you know, it's quite cheap and easy to produce cast beer. I'm not saying good cast beer, but to produce cast beer. People can just chuck out 3.5, 4% cast beer and just be like, yeah, have some of that. Um, and a lot of it is not, it's not good. And, yeah, there's, there's a, yeah you, need to, you need to respect the process sometimes, I would say. Um, I mean, it's very easy to feel, I think, as a modern brewer, that you're just an assembler rather than a brewer. You're just sort of getting your malt, getting your hops, yeast out of a packet, we're all brewing in the same store of equipment. We're all brewing in 45-degree cylinder conicals. Um, you know, and it's just, uh, you know, I think, I think beer is more fascinating than that. And I think it's more, um, yeah, uh, at hand, uh, you know, we, we get a lot of e-casks in. So e-casks and kegs are like where it's this company where, you know, you sign up for it and you just get these kegs from everybody. Um, you know, they've, they've got the yellow bands. So what you, what you find is you get stickers on them. When, when I'm keg cleaning, get clean the kegs, you, you get these stickers of all the various breweries. So there'll be Cloudwater would have used it maybe, or Verdant you may have used it, or Westerham or whatever. And you sort of see the ingredients and then sort of day in, day out, I'm cleaning these e-casks, e-kegs, so then we can then fill them ourselves. And you just sort of think, I mean, this is Groundhog Day. You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm just seeing the same type of beers over and over again. I'm drowning in 4% pale ales. <laughs> and I can understand why, why that's the market, because they're runner beers and people like hops. But for me personally, that's sort of, that's sort of the last thing I want to do. And if I'm able, with Sunken Nave, to, to create my own beers, I don't want to compromise on that, even if it means I only produce about three or four beers a year to begin with. Um, is, is my view. And I, think, and I think the cultural thing is important. You know, you go to Belgium and they still have these amazing legacies of these Flemish reds, Oudbrun and, you know, Lambics and all that sort of stuff. And, and their culture there is to drink, you know, bottles of 8 9%, the Abbey beers, the Trappist, and that's great. Over here, our, our culture, and, you know, people like Martin Cornell and Ron Patterson have written about this at length, our culture is lower strength beers, is the milds, is the bitters, is the IPAs or whatever at four... You know, uh, when you're working in cast beer, you try selling a cast beer that's 4.7. I mean, it's crazy. It's that 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 zone from 3.9 to 4.7 is like the Grand Canyon. I mean, it is unassailable. It's massive, even though it's only 0.8% alcohol. And and the culture over here is pale and hoppy beers. And that's something that, you know, obviously I respect. And, you know, that's 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 also a great thing. So I'm not I'm not totally dismissive of that. I'm just uh, in the incredibly entitled position of being able to hopefully have an opportunity to sort of produce beers that really really um, interest me in that way. And when they are the matured beers, they are the and they won't necessarily be matured for eleven years like the prize old ale with. I'm talking maybe like three months or six months or a year or you know uh, when you want to try and make these beers, you have to get. It's a bit like you know the sort of malt whiskey. Um, single malt whiskey, you've all got to get into traction. You know, you've got to build up your body, your, your barrel store and things like that. At the moment, I don't have anywhere to store it. So it's, it's you know, that's part of the fun of trying to get the sunken nave thing off the ground is, 
you know, I'm lucky enough that I'll be able to brew at hand and use their wonderful gravity kit that they've got there. Um, you know, I've got a tank there, a 22 hectolitre tank there. Um, but then once I package it, I have to get it off site because they haven't got any space. So that immediately brings you into, into, into play. I have to set up my own bonded warehouse somewhere. You know, I have to transport all this stuff. So it's, it's um, you know, I can see why people do 4% pale ales. Trying to do this stuff is a bit ridiculous. But, um, you know, if, if, if I don't do it now, when? It'd be great to hear about Prize Old Ale. Um, go back to the start. So how, how, how on earth did you find out about Prize Old Ale and how did you go about bringing it back to life? Well, um, <clears throat> so uh, Fuller's bought George Gale's brewery in Horndean, which is in Hampshire, in 2006. Uh, and John Keeling, the head brewer at Fuller's, decided that he wanted to ship all the Prize Old Ale um, which, as you can imagine, is this 9% strong, matured beer, um, all that remained at Gales to Fuller's. So, uh, and then they also took a brewer there, so a, a gentleman by the name of Anthony Smith, who's still at Fuller's. Uh, he's in charge of sort of maturation uh, zone of Fuller's. He, he was a brewer there. He'd just started. I think he was there for about 18 months, two years. He left... When Gail shut, he then moved to Fuller's. So, and he was my colleague. So I was team leader of the brew house. He was team leader on the cold side. And so he would just tell me about Prize Old Ale and how it was brewed. Yeah. And I fell in love with the romance of it. And for those that don't know, what's the history of Prize yeah, so, Old Ale? So, so Prize Old Ale is, uh, so, so uh, Gail's Brewery, classic Southern English fa um, family brewery, you know, Fuller's started in 1845, uh, Gales in 1847. Um, so in the 1920s, a, uh, they needed a new head brewer, and they got one from Yorkshire. So he bought with him a recipe for this Prizehold Ale. So the Prizehold Ale itself is based on a beer, well, it's a very loose style called a Stingo. So a Stingo, is, as a history, goes back hundreds and hundreds of years and it, and it goes back to the time when there was lots of brewing. Every, every sort of big manor house would have its own brewery. And a lot, of the, a lot of the lords of the manor would get into competition with each other to see which was the strongest beer they could brew. So these guys could net. So it's a little bit like the Mars and Oktoberfest kind of thing um, in Germany. Because it was too hot to brew in the summer, they would either brew it in March or October and they would mature it for at least a year. And so this, so a Stingo is basically a very strong AB alcohol, highly hopped, heavily hopped uh, beer that had, has been matured in wood. That is it. So of course, depending on what the, the manor, the guy was, uh, the Lord of the Manor was growing, you could have had all sorts of stuff in there. It could have been barley as well as wheat, as well as oats or, you know, whatever. Normally these type of beers, there was a big tradition that, car that carried on for a long time, of majority ales. So when the Lord of the Manor had a son, he would brew a bit, he'd get his serfs or whatever, his servants, to brew a really strong beer. I'm talking as strong as they could make it, 15%, 16%, hop it with everything they had. And then it would mature until, until the, 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 young, the young Lord reached 18. 
you know, and, and the boil times for these beers would have been immense, two, three hours, four hours possibly. They'd have just get, and again, it would have been cauldrons pretty much. So open flames, they'd have just been keep chucking the wood in underneath, boil, boil, boil. So you'd have been getting a lot of caramelization stuff and, and the milliard reaction, the darkening of the beer. So these beers would have been quite, quite dark um, to get that alcohol. And then they'd have let it mature for 18 years. Again, sadly, my business model can't. No one's going to give me money for beer that will be released in 18 years' time. Um, you know, anyone out there? Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's how they started. And, they, and, they, and, and people, you know, you've got barley wines and things like that. So this, I think this is slightly, slightly different in terms of de-aging because you can have barley wines that are reasonably sort of fresh, um, not quite aged quite as long. Uh, a little bit lower in alcohol. So this, so he, so this gentleman, I forget his name, brought the pri- the recipe for prize old ale to Horndine, and they brewed it continuously until uh, two thousand six. So that's eighty eighty six years or something. Uh, they were brewing it. Um, it was uh, yeah. Again, I mean, I I I, um, I I was very lucky enough to be invited to this. Uh, beer festival in Amsterdam called Brett Fest and give a talk about Prize Old Ale. And as you can imagine, um, they really wanted me to talk about the Prize Old Ale character, which, you know, it was pretty wild. You know, they had some things in there. There was some, you know, Acetobacter, there was some Brettanomyces, there was stuff like this. And, you know, they really wanted me to say that the batch I'd brewed was full of Brettanomyces, was full of all this stuff. And unfortunately, because the prize old ale itself had been at Fuller's, had been in tank so long, all um, the beer had gone from 9% to 11%, and a lot of all the bugs and everything had just sort of keeled over and died. So there wasn't actually a lot of stuff in there left. But the really important thing to remember about all those exciting microbes and all that stuff is that the, these English brewers weren't doing it intentionally. You had Dr. Hansen in Carlsberg. He was the one, or was it Hansen? It was one, or one of his assistants. He was the one who found the Brettanomyces, the British fungus, that these Victorian brewers were, were, you know, these Brettanomyces stuff, these wild yeasts, were living in the wood of the barrels. They were living in the breweries themselves. They were not, at least to begin with, they were not inoculating this stuff intentionally. They learned how to do that, and certainly after the Second World War, there were a few breweries, Colne Spring Ale by Benskins is a really good example of where they would, where they where they brewed clean. After they found out all this stuff, they were like, "Oh, we can't have all this stuff here. We need to get regimented." So they started fermenting clean and drinking the beers, these strong beers, and going, "Oh, something's missing." So then people like Benskins were like, "Let's control this." So then they, a bit like Orval does, um, they inoculated Britannomyces to get that flavour back. Again. Choose your Brett descriptors, if you will, because people always get upset when, you know, horse blanket is mentioned or leather or, you know, that kind of... It's, again, it's... it's, it's, Exactly, it's these deep, deep flavours that are really, I find so fascinating and so difficult to describe. Um, So, yeah, Prize Old Ale, Gales had a huge infection problem. You know, they had great brewers, but they had old kit. There was all sorts of stuff that it was just picking up. So they were rough filtering all their beer, even their cast beer, because they had to because of infection problems, whereas the prize old ale was, was not. So 
what's fascinating is that is that with the prize all day, it was matured in wood. It was in a copper-lined wooden washback for two weeks before it was then sent over to be to be matured in wooden hogsheads for a year before it was then bottled into 275 mil bottles and corked. And the and the quality was really starting to dip towards the end of uh, Gales's time. Um, yeah, a typical a tale as old as time. They were using. Uh, they were spending all their money on the pubs rather than the brewery. So the brewery was, was sort of collapsing a bit. Um, well, not collapsing, but, you know, they, they weren't upgrading. Um, so then, so it was, in, it was maturing in wood. But then when it went to Fuller's, they then put it all in steel tanks, stainless steel tanks, and then brewed up a batch of Gale's Prize Old Ale at Fuller's and then blended it all together. So to quote Tyson Fury, you know, this prize old ale that's about to be released by Asahi on the 16th of November, or um, has already been released, um, that is a lineal blend of all of that stuff because that's what they were doing at Gales. They were blending in older batches of prize old ale with this newer stuff that they were making, maturing it for a year, and then releasing it. So kind of like a Solera style, exactly. So, 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 Solera. I mean, that's that's my that's my understanding of what they of what they were doing at Gales. Maybe maybe that isn't. That's certainly what they were doing at Fuller's. That's certainly what they were doing at Fuller's. I I've been led to believe that they were blending, as well at at, at Gales. If I'm wrong, Derek Lowe, Anthony Smith, Moira Williams, please tell me. Um, but yeah, I, that, that that's certainly what they were doing at Fuller's. And so you have this le- this tremendous legacy that's going back eighty six years, um, you know. And then to go back to the to the beginning of, of your question, so many years ago now, it feels like um, I just fell in love with the with the romance of it. Anthony Smith was telling me how they had a it was a Victorian Tower brewery there in Hornby, and they had a um, their old copper, and they only used it for prize old ale. So they would boil it for three hours in there. And then there were, you know, sort of holes in it and stuff like that. And so work would sort of come dripping down and all this sort of stuff. And then, as I say, you got the wooden washbacks, you got the hogs heads, and you got that flavour. Um, I was just entranced by it. And the fact that it was just alone down there, unloved in that tank um, at Fuller's, you know, I thought was a tra- travesty because tasting it, having having already loved uh, Rowing Back Grand Cru, is one of my favourite. It is my favourite beer of all time. Um, I was just like, wow, this this is tasting similar, but also softer and a bit more toffee and things like that. Um, so yeah, and then um, and then I got talking to. I was lucky enough to meet um, Brett Ellis from um, uh, Wild Beer Co. Formerly, um, and he knew all about Prize Oldale and he loved it. And it, uh, Brett is a incredibly talented um, Californian. Brewer, he was he was a chef, and he and he moved into um, uh, brewing. I mean, he first caught my attention because Wild Beer Co.'s first beer was Modus Operandi, um, which was a blooming old ale, yeah, lovely matured barrel aged old ale. So as soon as I saw that, I think that was 2013. As soon as I heard about that, I was like, these guys are incredible. Get out of my head, get out of my dreams, um, you know, and into my into my glass. Um, it was, you know, so I, I knew those guys and they knew all about Prize Old Ale. And so we came up with a plan. This is sort of 2015, I think, 2016, that we would brew a batch at Fuller's and then blend it together with what we had, the original stuff, and then get it tankered 
to uh, Somerset while Wild Beer Co. was, and they would take on that wooden hogshead idea and we would blend it in a variety of different barrels and stuff like that. And unfortunately, that never, that never happened. That never came to, to fruition. But it, having them on board really helped me get the conversation started with Fuller's about getting it, about, about releasing it, and also planted in my mind the idea of the Solera method. So, you know, I have, I have, I have Brett, Brett Ellis's genius to, 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 to thank for that, um, for sort of helping me on my way with that. Um, so, yeah, so then, then, and then, you know, things happened with Fuller's and, and it sort of slid off the radar despite me periodically saying, can we do this? Why don't we release this? This prize all day, people will really like it. I mean, then Fuller's have got Vintage Ale, you know, which is their big release, and they had the Past Masters. I suppose it was too crowded at that time. So fast forward to when now I'm at uh, Dark Star, you know, I'm still pining after prize old ale, which I've left behind in Chiswick. And then I hear that they want to get rid of the tank that it's in because it's right by the, the, the maturation sip set and put because they want a water tank there. So I'm like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. So talking to Guy Stewart, who's, who's the, the boss, the, the brewery manager there, he very kindly agreed to pay for the tankering of it from from Fuller's to um, uh, to to Darkstar, so I'm there and I put it in a tank. So I'm now finally the, the I finally got my baby home. You know, no nobody leaves Prize Old Ale in the corner. So I've got it. And so this is um, when was this? This was sort of it was some point in 2020. Some point I think just before COVID. Um, you know, I had it. And then obviously COVID happened and, and, you know, we were, you know, that, 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 that killed everything, all plans for, for a while. I then made the mistake of talking to Asahi um, and sort of saying, look, um, I need £15,000 for a wooden washback. If we're going to do this, we need to maximise the complexity. We need to really go for it. And of course, Asahi being a normal company was like, whoa, no, what? No, absolutely not. What are you talking about? I said, like, but the complexity. Um, and that basically, my, my mistake kicked it, the plan into touch for about another 18 months. And slowly, I'm, after whispering to them and calming them down for, long, for a while, I managed to say, look, sorry about the whole wooden washback thing. That was me shooting for the moon. Uh, and I ended up in a black hole. Um, <laughs> Uh, we'll just do it in stainless steel. Just let me brew it. It's a cheap beer for you guys to make. There's no seriously expensive hops. You know, just let me do it and I'll blend the two together and we'll, I'll bottle it by hand myself. And, you know, it's low risk. Okay, we're only talking, you know, I've got 4,000 litres already of the original stuff. I'll make another 4,000 litres. You know, this is not, it's not a lot of beer. You know, it, it's, it's, it's low risk. So they, they agreed. Um, and then so... You know, Anthony Smith had been helping me throughout all of this stuff, giving me all this information. He truly is the MVP of this whole story, really, him rather than me. Um, he came down for the brew. I was also joined by my dear friend, Jamil Zenishev, uh, who I, at Fuller's I did a 260 hectolitre sour with, blackberry sour, um, which was which was incredible. I'd done that a few years before, and so we and and uh, our friend Neil Spake as well, who's a great home brewer from Texas, um, and we and we did the brew in April in April twenty twenty two. 
So that was a seriously emotional day. So Anthony brought down the Gales yeast from Fuller's, um, you know, and as you can imagine, they were in uh, 25 litre blue drums. As you can imagine, they were really expanding in the heat. Uh, so when I opened them up, uh, it, uh, it was very wild. Um, so we did the beer. We whacked in. So the beer, the beer itself is very, very simple. It's pale ale malt. I chose Maris Otter. That isn't what they used back then. But I was like, look, if I've got one sh-, as I rightly predicted, I was only going to get one shot at this. So I went for the Marisotto. I went for that really beautiful top, top of the range barley, um, torrified wheat and black malt. That's it from the, the grist. And then the hops, it was Goldings and Fuggles. A lot of Goldings and Fuggles at the, at the start. It was interesting because it's a um, the Dark Star, they had a four-vessel sort of continental system. So you had the mash mixer, the Lauter Tun, and a separate copper and, and whirlpool. And, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't allowed to use whole cone hops because we couldn't in our kettle, so I had to use um, uh, type, uh, type, 20, type, type 90 pellets, I should say. Um, they, uh, you know, you, you get different hop utilizations there and stuff. So I had to try. I knew I had the specs there in terms of the bittering units. The bittering was about 45. Um, you know, and so I couldn't, I couldn't do what I wanted to do, which is just basically whack loads of um, hops in at the start because that's kind of what these beers do. They whack all the hops in at the start and that's it. There's no, you know, citra or mosaic charge at 75 degrees Celsius um, and all that sort of stuff. No dry hopping or anything like that. We did whack in a quarter ton of invert sugar. So we had the blocks to so whack those in to, to, to add a bit of flavor and color and also obviously get the, get the, um, uh, get the extract up. Uh, I got told off on Twitter because as people quite rightly said at, at Gales, they used glucose. So glucose is a more complicated, is a more sort of, um, you know, it's a, it's a different sugar to, to invert sugar. So it, the yeast ferments it in a different way. So, you know, people were, people were very dismissive of my largesse, you know, my, my, my love of invert. Um, and then, yeah. And then that was, that was it. So we, 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 um, you know, we only did a two-hour boil, so we only needed a two-hour boil to get up to ninety, an OG of ninety-two. We put in the fermenter, aerated it because we were using liquid yeast rather than dried, and then the next day I, I, I aerated it again, and it fermented really quick in about sort of forty-eight hours. Really, it went, and um, yeah, and then I left it in that tank. I yeasted it off and all that sort of stuff. Uh, left it in the tank for a while. Um, and then, yeah, and then I didn't, and then I blended it. So if we brewed it in the April, I blended it together in the May, the two tanks. And as you can imagine, that was, um, that felt like blasphemy. As I've said in other places, you know, that was a very, very nervous moment. You've got this incredible beer that's already going back to 1920s and plus it's been maturing by this point pretty much undisturbed for about 11 years. And you're blending the two together. And then we left it for six months. Um, and then, yeah, well, then we started, we had the launch at the Harp. And then, unfortunately, we, the day before we were due to launch it in bottle, uh, we were told that Asahi was shutting the Partridge Green site. So, unfortunately, we had to delay the launch. And then we, had, we were in this very, very weird situation where we were just trying to bottle as much as we could before everyone was, was let go. Uh, apart from me, at, at, uh, at Christmas. 
so yeah, so we didn't release quite as much as we wanted to, but we still, we still, um, I think it was about three thousand bottles, three thousand five hundred liter bottles, all waxed by my fair hand. I found it very, very soothing. The wood, the gold wax. It's something I'll, I'll carry on. You can't see this, but I've got a tremendous sort of figure of eight kind of. I'll, I'll do a YouTube video about how I do it. It was wonderful. Um, so yeah, but you know, it was still great, and it was just such a relief, I think, to taste it and discover that it wasn't wasn't horrible that I hadn't totally messed it up um so yeah so it was just it was just a very funny time really it was I sort of achieved this dream that I'd been trying to do for I mean think about it it's not even yeah seven seven years eight years and I got it done and then I had the launch at the Hart pub which is this incredible pub in Covent Garden really one of the best um it's a fullest pub now but it's still a wonderful wonderful cast beer pub you know one of the best in the world and to launch it there was amazing. My mum was there. All the Desdemore Moore was there. I mean, all these, all these great um, John Porter, all these l- wonderful people. And um, and then, as I say, so I reached my height of 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 my pomp. I was a man in full. And then the next week, literally the next week, they'd announced they were they were shutting, and we were all to be pretty much made redundant. Um, so you know that was that was a crashing fall fall from grace. But you know it's. Uh, that's life, as I say. Yeah, as you say, it's a huge contrast there between the high and the low. The high and the low, yeah. And of course, uh, Sahi, you know, had, had had their reasons. So you know, I, I don't want to badmouth them too much. It's fair to say you had a critical reception when it was released. Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, it was wonderful. Really, I got to talk to you know, I got to know Roger Protz a bit and talk to him. You know, so he's he's a legendary beer writer. Uh, he was very very supportive. Also, I mean, the, the main man really is Martin Cornell, who's, who's, who's helped with, I mean, you, you were saying you've, you've read his article that he's just released. Um, he, did, he did a lot of help. He really helped me get it off the ground. He, he, he pro bono, he wrote a report on Prize Old Ale and why it was so important. And that was really crucial, giving, handing that over to the, the marketing team at, at Asahi. That was really, really helped impress upon them the importance of this beer. And I think the fact that someone of the stature of Martin Cornell was 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 involved i think really really helped so yeah it was it was uh, you know it was beer of the week yeah. in the daily star adam adrian tierney jones i need to get that i need to get that framed i've still got it um you know uh, great for i mean from a uh, personal selfish point of view it was great for my profile great for for my future project um it's just very sad that um it's it's come at the cost of you know sort of Losing my dream job and 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 working with a, with a great team of people, but you know, as I say, this is it's business. You know. So I think you're it's an example of Gales standing on the shoulders of all the brewers that went before you, adding on to that long line that's gone since the 1920s. Exactly, uh, I'm part of the history now. I'm part exactly. of I'm an extra. I'm part of the fabric. So now it's now it's and and you know I'm and I'm genuinely I'm really I'm really thrilled that um, Asahi have carried it on. You know, and I think that's that's a testament to them and. I know Sven, who's the lead brewer, and I'm sure he's going to do a great job. And I'll certainly be buying a case of it when it's when it's released. So I, I wish I wish them all the best in, in in that regard, you know. And hopefully, sales are good, and 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 it becomes a it becomes a yearly release. You know, that, that's that's ultimately the greatest victory and and success of this whole project that I could hope for, really. So fingers crossed. Absolutely. And what it says is, I think there's so many like chance moments when mm. that beer could have gone and disappeared and mm. become a line in a history book but it was there were 
chance decisions. There's some really good decisions, and then there's been some real determination to get that beer along. And without all of those things, you wouldn't end up with any of the beers being yeah. released there and being enjoyed by people. Yeah, exactly, and exactly, and, and uh, you know, and as I say, a hell of a lot of people worked very hard to, to, to help me along. You know, John Keeling deserves a lot of praise, and as I say, Anthony Smith provided a huge amount of the technical know-how and stuff like that. So, I mean, I like to think that I was the spark. You know, I mean, I like to think without my driving in crazy enthusiasm for this thing, it wouldn't have got off the ground. My relentless calling of people, um, you know, so that's so I I I I, ex- I grudgingly accept my share of of the praise, um, but you know, it's it's and it and what a wonderful project to be involved with. You know, what a really yeah, uh, very 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 fortunate that um, people didn't care about Prize Old Ale and they let me pick up the baton. You know. I think, yeah, and you've shown it's an ale worth caring about. Yeah, definitely, because it's so it's so different from vintage ale that Fuller's do. And 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 again, talking about the strong Suffolk that Green King do, a personal, as I say, a hostage, as I call it. Um, you know, that's a great beer that's not really made that much of. And hopefully, if it's if the people see the what I really hope is that people see the success of Prize Old Ale, and a lot of these family brewers dig up their old recipes and start doing it again. I've got a friend of mine. At a brewery up north, I won't mention it until it's actually released. But he's managed to convince his bosses to do a stock ale in this site. So, you know, this time next year, Rodney, we'll all be drinking nine percent, and we'll just be like, "Why did we never do this?" It's just as long as it's not in pints. So on to pastures new now for you, Henry, and you've got a couple of projects on the go at once. Never one to take things lightly, but you're working at Hanbury as a brewer, and you're also starting off your own project brewery, uh, Sunken Nave. And can you tell us a little bit about both of those? Sure. Um, so uh, yes, I'm, I'm very lucky to be to be at Hanbury Co. So the, so the brewery is very close to my house, which is great. Always a big tick. Always a big. I can yeah. walk there, or if it's raining, get a taxi. You know, lazy like that. Um, yeah, so, so Hambrew Co. Uh, is, is owned by a gentleman called Jack Tavare. I may be getting his surname wrong. I think everyone pronounces it differently. Um, so he, he, he's, a, he's, he's a young guy. He's, um, I've known him for a long time. He's, 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 a, he's a lovely guy. He started off, um, I think he, he, he trained at the Brew Lab up in Sunderland. So that's how he got into it. And then he's been a fixture in the Brighton brewing scene. So he 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 was brewing at the hand in hand brew pub in in Brighton in the Kemp Town area of Brighton. If people have never been, really go. It is an amazing pub. Um, Rob, you were saying off off air that you it holds a special place in your heart as well. Um, it's it's a great part of town and it's a great great pub. And that's sort of where Hand Bruco started. Um, and he's built up the business to such an extent that he's, they've now got a, a brewery in, in an industrial estate in Worthing, near West Worthing Station, which is a lot bigger. Um, and so that's, that's where I work. And I'm, I'm working under the auspices of the head brewer there, Kate, Kate Hyde, who's been, who's, um, who's, who's been the head brewer there, I think, since they moved to Worthing. So that's three, three years. So she's, She's she's great and loves a lot of really strange beers like me, so that's that's good. Um, and also for my own career, it, it's great to work there because it really is a really sort of upfront craft brewery. So they're doing a lot of stuff. I'm along my my career has sort of been very cask focused. 
I was lucky at Fuller's because it was a massive place that I was only in the brew house. Once it got into the fermenter, I didn't care about it anymore. It wasn't my problem. It was Anthony Smith's problem. I certainly didn't have to do any packaging, which, as we all know, is the worst bit of brewing, whether you're home brewing or whatever you're doing. So, but now I'm now I'm back to being a brewer. You know, these guys are very, very craft focused. So what that means is that I don't have my trillions of little friends, my trillions of foot soldiers, namely my little yeasts. When you work in a cask brewery, yeast does everything for you. It makes the beer. If you're making cask beer, it carbonates it for you. You know, it scrubs oxygen out. I love all those little guys. It doesn't stop me getting rid of them every brew, you know, but, you know, I still appreciate them. When you're working for a craft brewery, there is none of that. Because you're force carbonating and you're kegging, there, as I say, the first time I cleaned an FV at at hand, I was like, there's too many bits. You've got a carb stone in there. You've got your sample. You always have your sample tap, whether you're doing cast beer or whatever. You're constantly having to put top pressure on the top of the tank. You're really trying to keep the oxygen out there, quite rightly. Um, you know, there's just it, it's just it's just an ordeal. You're trubbing off the tank. You know, you're getting rid of the hops and the yeast, you know, because they like doing their dry hop beers all the time. I'm like, you never had to do any of this at Dark Star. You know, it was it's so much more straightforward when you're putting beer into casts. That still doesn't mean that. You know, it's easy to make good cast beer. You still got to have all your best practices. But this is a whole sort of new world for me. Uh, you know, so I'm kegging and doing, you know, doing all this stuff. So it's 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 been an education for me in terms of um, all that stuff and carbonating, carbon getting beers carbonated and doing all that stuff. So I, you know, I've been I've been humbled. You know, I've been I've been taken down from my from my ivory tower, but it's good for me. You know, um, and uh, yeah, so that's 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 good. It's you know, it's tough. It's hard work. Um, but, you know, they're a great bunch of people and it's, um, you know, lovely, lovely to work there. And as I say, Handbrook have got have got a great brew kit, which is nice. Um, you know, it works and everything. And you can actually get a, run a brew through pretty, pretty quickly. You know, normally it sort of takes about eight hours there. It can take five or six. Um, so, yeah, so it's 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 nice. It, it feels like a good move for me and 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 then the reason why I have the job is that I basically burst into the brewery and said look I need somewhere to brew my sunken nave beers okay and you need a brewer so why don't I brew for you and then I can put a tank in and uh, use your kit on Saturdays and brew into it and to my total astonishment they agreed um so now I'm in the position where and luckily one of the tanks that they had uh, they it was a, owned by a contract customer of theirs, and they needed to sell it, and so I bought it. So it's it feels very fortunate. I've known Jack and Kate for a long time, you know. So it's it's uh, it's great to be working with them anyway. But it's it, it feels fortuitous. Obviously, the money is less fortuitous, but that's just a reality, you know. When you leave when you leave the corporate world behind, you know, you you get a you get a pay cut. Um, but other than that, you know, that's and there has to be some sacrifices somewhere. You know, I can't keep living high on the hog and expecting lots of money for just like clean, cleaning kegs and, and, and tanks, as important as that is, Jack. Um, so, yeah, so that's so it's great to find a home for it. So I, I think I realized very quickly that, um, you know, as I say, with the prize old ale thing, you know, it, it was great 
and I feel that I earned that rise in my in my profile. I was trying to I was genuinely trying to do something. It wasn't just purely for selfish reasons that I wanted to re re release this beer, get this uh, prize old ale real released. But I realised with the timing of Asahi um, uh, letting us go, that you know they've they've uh, you know this 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 has given me extra um, extra extra emotional power to kind of achieve what I'm going to achieve because at the age of forty, either I do my own thing in some way or I'll never never do it. So it's kind of given me the opportunity to leave behind, as I say, my dream job, which was a dark star, but to move on and challenge myself um, and, and, and try and go on my own. I mean, obviously my, um, well, I say obviously, my, uh, my hero in all of this, my lodestar is, is Mark Tranter in terms of what he's done, where he left Dark Star 10 years ago, possibly even longer now, um, used that money to set up Burning Sky. Because not only does he make incredible beers, especially his saisons, I think, are the best in the UK, so much great stuff. He's also got an incredible brewery. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's in Furl. I don't think they do tell, uh, tours or anything. But he's got this beautiful 17th century barn in this beautiful village, you know, near Lewis, where he brews this stuff. And, you know, he's got the cool ship and, the, you know, it's incredible. So, of course, I want something like that. You know, every, I, ever, I doubt I'll ever get there. You know, it's a fantasy of mine that this whole project will reach a point where I'll just be, I'll have my 17th century barn in the South Downs in Worthing somewhere. And I'll just spend my time just knocking nails into barrels and tasting them and going, Oh, that needs another two years before I blend in with that. Um, so the, so the idea with sunken name, I suppose, is to try and, is to try and, and go on my own sort of flavor journey and, and develop my own understanding of of these type of beers of of these classic styles, um, and uh, you know put 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 my own spin on it or whatever, or just find or just really nail what I like. I'll, I'll give you an example of that. I find with a lot of barley wines that they can be just too under attenuated, too sweet, and too cloying. I really don't like that. And there are barley wines which are incredible, which totally nail what I want to achieve, then perhaps a bit drier, a bit less hot, a bit less sweet, that sort of thing. Again, it's difficult to describe with words what I'm what I want. But it's yeah, trying to carve a little opportunity for myself to make beers in those in those ways. And the 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 whole the the sunken nave name as it came out was uh I've always I've lived in Worthing now for nearly nine years. And I've always been very interested in the local history of the place. I'm that kind of guy. Um, and the story is, is that on the outskirts of... Um, I've been told that I really needed to deliver a 10-second punchy pitch for this, but I've really struggled. But um, So the, here's, here's the slightly longer one. Anyway, the, the sunken nave thing, the logo is a church tower falling into the sea with a little smuggler guy with an eyeglass on a turret part of it. Um, so on the, on the outskirts of, of Worthing, you've got this village called Ferring, and the sea used to go out a lot further all the way across Worthing. Um, and there used to be uh, sort of like common land where they would graze sheep and stuff, and there was a church there. And one night, uh, the, the sea slowly sort of encroached upon it, and there's some wonderful contemporary accounts of them being in this church when there's seawater on three sides of it. 
And then one calamitous storm, it fell into the sea while the bell was ringing. And then rumour has it, so this is in the 1600s, so rumour has it when the, the spring tides come in and there's a storm and the, you know, the moon is in the house of Aquarius or whatever, you can hear the bell ringing. And I remember always reading this plinth, you know, when we're taking the dog for the walk or the kids or whatever out there, just thinking, this is so, I'm loving this. This is incredible. So suddenly I was sort of thinking to myself, I need to come up with my own brewery name now. How do I, how do, I do this? And for ages, I was looking in the, in the book, in the Sussex dialect book, and every good name that I found, like, uh, what was the one? Well, I can't remember what it was called, but I was like, I'm going to call it this. And then Beak had done it, we were in Great Brewery based in Lewis. They had um, they got it, and I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to need to allow myself two words now. And then suddenly this thing just came into my mind of sunken, and then the central part of a church is called the nave. And another thing about Fuller's, another thing about Worthing, is that there's all these little alleyways called Twittons in the Sussex dialect. And the Twittons is where all the smugglers would have rolled all their French cognacs or whatever along. And these Twittons always end up at pubs. And a lot of churches in this area were used as lookout posts for, you know, for the federales, for the excise men, you know, so they were like this. So I was like, smugglers. So you can't call your brewery, Smuggler Ales or Rebel or Outlaw, because it's the biggest freaking cliche there is, right? But there's the nave of a church, N-A-V-E, but at a K, it becomes a nave, which is also like a Smuggler Outlaw. It's a different, it's a yeah. different word. So that whole thing of sunken nave really appealed to me, and it came to me in a flash, and I was like, okay, that's what it's going to be called. So that's where, that's where the name came from. And it also... Sort of, sort of coincided with this idea of sunken beers, resurrecting lost styles. And um, I've been lucky enough to make friends with some sort of local brewing historian guys who run the Worthing Pubs website. Check it out if you're in the area. It's fascinating. Loads of, uh, loads of photos. Um, and I've discovered that there were various breweries um, in, in Worthing, and I have recipes of... of of one of them, which is called Tamplins. So to, um, they had a brewery here briefly. So basically what I'm going to, what I, there's a, there's an archive of Tamplins recipes over in East Sussex. Uh, the archive is called The Keep, which is a name that I love. It's near Brighton Stadium. It's near the Amex. Um, and you, and you go in there and they've got some, they've got some sort of clues. I wouldn't call them recipes. I'd call them clues. So pointers. pointers. And I've got some other recipes from Brighton beers because in Worthing, there was a lot of, there was Kemptown Brewery um, and based in Brighton, but they had a lot of Worthing pubs. So a lot of people would have been drinking the Kemptown stuff. And so they've got their, their logo is a, the Brighton Dolphin, which is this real freaky looking dolphin. But anyway, I've got some of their pump clips and I can see that they were doing double brown stouts and, and double, double, double dolphin, it was called. So I'm basically trying to piece together what they were drinking and and brewing and what you know what sort of stuff um and basically uh, yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna produce uh, this is i'm thinking about it, this is like totally pointless what am i trying to do but the I'm, I'm gonna try and produce what i think i'm gonna cherry pick from all these influences and produce a beer that i think is a sort of interesting take on all that sort of 
that mess, that hot mess that I just told you. So it's, it's yeah, it's sort of important. Um, it's going to be those sort of styles alongside milds and light ales and things like that because I have to do some stuff that's lower ABV to, but it'll be in the, in the classic tradition, I think, rather than the sort of kernel table beer sort of stuff yeah i love that though that's all um i don't know very much like similar to prize over there in the sense of taking something old mm. working with the history of the place and you described that so well about um you know the, the history i love the names of the little uh, alleyways that mm. people yeah, the use twins, yeah. so i've heard of snickets as the one yeah. uh, which people used to sort of get around the area but all those sorts of local terms that really represent a place mm. Uh, taking the beers from the breweries that were there at the time, mm. representing the time, and bringing them back for now with your twist, your take, your uh, curation, I guess, of all of that. Yeah, yeah. Ho- I mean, hopefully, as I say, there's not... Um, I also think what's, in- what's fun for me about it is that there's never been a better time to brew than right now. We have access to everything. Not only do we... I mean, take, for example, Brute IPA. Some guy comes up with that in San Francisco. Within about two weeks, everyone's brewing it all over the world. The internet has allowed all this information. And there's something wonderful about the fact that the detective worked to try and piece together this. And also that the answer might be pretty nondescript. I might come up, I might come up with some beers. Um, obviously, my beers will be incredible. But I might, you know, I might, you know, I'll find recipes and go, oh, right, okay. Because we're being... You know, uh, two hundred years ago, it was a fishing village. You know, this is yeah, this is not a brewing brewing heartland, but I st- I just find it, I just find that 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 interesting. And so so a big thing that I would love to do, uh, but I think it's commercial suicide, is that around here you can still see it where people still there's still bottles of brown man's brown ale and some blend blending beers where you'd have like half a bitter and put the brown in there or mild or whatever. I want to. I want to release. I want to do. I love brown ales anyway, so I'm really keen to do my own version. But I want to see if I can like do some weird thing where it's like, yeah, here's some here's some firkins of my beer, and then here's a case of the brown ale to blend with as well, right? Because that was a big thing. I always remember my my um, my my background is is West London, so my granddad always used to say to me. First, he said to me when I was getting into brewing, he's like, there's no money in brewing. Why do you want to do this? <laughs> and, and, and in many ways, he was absolutely right. But talking to him about he, how he drank, it was all light and bitter and brown. And they, they, a lot of times they did that because, because the cask beer was a bit old and wasn't very good. But there's, some, there's something there about blending again, and it's the culture. Yeah. You know, at Fuller's, I mean, they called it, um, I think, it was, I mean, again, the, the lads there will correct me, but... You know, if you had, if you mixed Golden Pride, which is that 8.5% barley wine with um, uh, ESB, which is their classic 5.7% strong uh, bitter, um, they called it Blood and Pride. <laughs> Mainly because if you drank some of those, you'd fall over on the way in there and you'd like crack open your head. Again, drink responsibly. I'm not advising that. So it's, it's that sort of thing. I'm letting out all my trade secrets here, aren't I? But um, it, it's, it's it's that thing that I, yeah, that is interesting. And as I say, I'm now 40. I reached a point in my career where I became a head brewer and now I've been dis- defenestrated from that. And I'm just sort of thinking, what do I want to do? And can I get away with it? Can I be audacious enough? We'll see. <laughs> can you tell us anything about what might be coming up with Sunken Nave or is that... Hush, hush at the moment. So, so there are some there are some really exciting collabs 
So um, I think by the time this will be released, this will happen. So on Monday, I'm doing a collab with Ruth and Andy at Elusive, which is a real, real thrill, really incredible. Uh, and that's going to be a 6% old ale. Um, a lot of my focus is going to be on old ales again, because in, in Sussex, the old ale is, is part of the culture here, especially um, in the wintertime. The Harvey's old ale is, is the benchmark, 4.3% nearly 28% crystal malt, Ugh! medium crystal malt from uh, French and Jups. Don't tell anyone I told you that. Um, you know, invert sugar number four with, uh, you know, all, the, all this wonderful stuff. So, uh, yeah, so there'll be, um, you know, I'll, I'll be doing some cask old ales, so that sort of lower strength stuff, um, more sessionable old ales. Um, and yeah, and then and then this sort of historical stuff see 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 where we where it takes me we've got a difficulty now in that because they've changed the duty rates anything that's over 8.4 percent is full duty and that is a real problem that's a real problem so um because it just means so for example if i wanted to do a firkin of um a nine and a ten percent beer the duty on it alone would be 120 quid wow so you know i'm ringing around pubs being like do you want a, do you want a firkin of of this yeah, great. It's 250 quid. Hello? Hello? Any, anyone there? I'm holding a phone, a, phone, a, a hand phone to my face. So we will, yeah, we will, we will see how I operate within those limitations. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm going to, yeah, I'm, I just see that so many people do hazy IPAs and stuff like that well, and it's really difficult to do technically. So if people can do it well technically, I'm, I'm, they have my deep respect. I can't do that. I can't afford to do that. You know, these hops are expensive. And, and in the same way, a lot of people do Imperial Stouts. I'm less interested in doing that because it's well served. I want to do some other stuff. So watch this space. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So for anyone who's interested in it, where can they follow you and find out more? So I do, I do have a website it's called sunkennave.com. There is a sort of subscriber list on there. Uh, a few people have signed up. So I am planning on doing a lot of bottling and selling direct to direct to customers if, if they'll have me. Um, so yeah, there's the website. There's also an Instagram, Sunken Nave and uh, X, uh, as we should Formerly say. Formerly known as Twitter. Formerly yeah. known as Twitter, Sunken Nave. Yeah. So you can you can you can find it all there. Um, I'm hoping to get my first brew in myself before the end of um, November. Sorry, before um, before yeah before Christmas ideally. So. Yeah, that, that's where you'll find out all on the, on the, on the social media. I will also be a, doing a tasting um, session yet to be confirmed at the Indie, is it the Indie Beer Feast, which is part of Sheffield Beer Week, um, the 1st and 2nd of March. Uh, go to Sheffield anyway, even if you don't come and see me. Sheffield's an incredible brewing city, uh, pub city. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'll be doing a tasting there alongside other, other events. So, you know, 2024 is going to be the year of sunken nave, people. So, you know, get on board. Thank you so much, Henry. Really appreciate it. And it's been fabulous to hear about all of your uh, history, experience and journey with beer. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for thinking of me and inviting me on the podcast. And best of luck with your new venture with this. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you too, of course, to Henry for being our guest. You can find out all of the social media handles and breweries in the show notes. And this is the part where I ask for your help. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review or rating or share it with others. 
This really helps us out and helps other people find the podcast, particularly as we're starting out. And you can follow us on social media, search for We Are Beer People, all one word. You can also email us at wearebeerpeoplepod at gmail.com. Let us know what you think, share your thoughts, and if you have any recommendations for beer people you'd like to hear from. And until next time, don't forget, you, me, us, them, we are all beer people. Beer people.